0: This this, this
1: show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to Safety Wars Live for Friday, October 14, 2022. We're broadcasting from the borders of Liberty and Prosperity and the Highway to the North. Welcome to our show. We got a lot of stuff going on tonight. We just have some updates from the Chemical Safety Board. They had just released a report from the PES fire and explosion in Philadelphia back way back in June of 2019. Uh, when I was working in the finder, refinery refining industry, pardon me, they were making a big deal out of it. Then it should be a big deal. I'm shocked that there wasn't more mayhem. We're going to finish off with a discussion on fall protection because it's fall protection Friday. I had to figure out alliteration for the other days for other safety topics. Somehow, biohazard Monday not doesn't really sound so we here we have in Chicago a fifth grade teacher allegedly made a kill list of students a 58th grade teacher in East Chicago Indiana it's not Chicago Illinois East Chicago Indiana where I've been there's a lot of oil facilities there has been detained by police after it was discovered that she had a kill list of individuals which included her students and staff members she worked at St. Stanislaus School in East Chicago and this happened Thursday. There had been uh, reports about a threatening report that had been made at the school. Upon the arrival, the officers spoke with the principal and assistant principal of the school who claimed that the teacher told the fifth grade student about the list and informed them that he or she was at the bottom of that list. Well, I don't know what precipitated that, but that sounds a little bit ridiculous. I do know that teachers do teach li- uh, keep lists, and what they do is they identify. I've been told this by several teachers over the years that they actually keep lists, and they—hold on, I'm getting some feedback here. i got to fix that. They keep lists of students and then check back as to what they're going to be, and they actually, some schools, have a pool. This one's going to be a criminal. This one's going to be a doctor. This one's going to be a lawyer, what have you. Uh, I don't know how different this was, why you would have a kill list, but thank God they uh, got a hold of the person and they're doing an investigation uh, before something really bad happens. Our next story. The Department of Justice is sued for explaining why it won't protect Supreme Court justices' homes from protests. So it's against the law. It's a, it's a federal offense, actually, to actually uh, protest at a federal judge's house in the hopes of getting them to change their mind a decision or influence a decision. And apparently the Justice Department is being very selective on when they enforce this, or how who they enforce this on. And they're being sued right now. It's the uh, Heritage Foundation versus the Department of Justice. It was filed this week in the District Court of District of Columbia. And uh, one of the parts of the case is that the DOJ has refused, refused to provide documents requested under the Freedom of Information Act explaining why it won't enforce uh, the uh, FOIA. And it goes on and on and on. And this is, again, a thing. We had the January 6th uh, incident, what have you, on the Capitol. We're focused a lot on that. Well, now we're having issues with other federal uh, officials, in this case, federal judges, the Supreme Court. Probably, no, they're breaking the law. I don't know. Why are we seeing a disparity on enforcement? Apparently. Hopefully we got this all straightened out because we can't continue to dislike and argue with each other in this country. That will be a safety issue. Also. Hold on. Europe. Europe's rising demand for gas provides gains for Australian liquefied natural gas exporters. So basically, higher prices is canceling out the transportation issue uh right and as the transportation costs, it's sort of like the science no there's a saying out there at least from my era that seinfeld has an anecdote on every part of life right so if you recall the seinfeld episode where they were uh trying to get return deposit cans uh for deposits in areas in this case chicago right uh for, because they got a higher, they got a higher deposit on aluminum cans at the time, and Newman decides that they're going to pack. And right, he has a uh, there's a, a, a postal vehicle going to Chicago, making like an emergency delivery. So he says we're going to go and we're going to pack the whole thing filled with aluminum cans so we could get the higher deposit rate because transportation is not a factor anymore. It doesn't cost to transport this stuff because the post office will do it. Well, this is sort of like the same thing where the price in liquefied natural gas is high enough because of the Ukraine situation and now it's competitive to ship liquefied natural gas from Australia. I don't know how they're going. I don't know if they're going through the Panama Canal that way or they're going around the Cape of Good Hope around Africa, or the Suez Canal. Whatever it is, I would think it's not such a good idea, maybe, to be shipping that much liquefied natural gas around in a populated area. Wouldn't be my decision. But uh, basically, the uh, I know when they make a delivery into New York Harbor, uh, specifically around the Bayway Refinery, uh, coming into Linden, that... Everything shuts down when that liquefied natural gas uh, tanker comes in. What's going on here? I don't know. Uh, it would seem to me putting a liquefied natural gas tanker through a canal may not be a good thing, especially if there's a catastrophic situation, if you know what I mean, especially with the uh, you know, Suez Canal and you have like a potential nuclear war in that neighborhood. I don't know. I don't think, it, no, Egypt isn't in it, but you never know. This thing could go really hot really quick. Next story. Here we have nuclear, oh, we got to get our nuclear warning. Putin sent 11 nuclear bombers within 20 miles of NATO borders as he threatened a nuclear war at the same time. This happened on October 7th. A satellite image showed T-160 strategic bombers and 1495 aircraft at the Russian airbase in Olenya on the Kolsky Peninsula. I I know I'm destroying that name. And two days after that, another image showed one of the T-160 bombers. That's a little bit alarming, to be honest with you. I think it is, at least. The FDA warns of an Adderall shortage. So Adderall is a prescription medication. Normally, uh, it's a sign. It's uh, prescribed for a whole bunch of stuff. But mainly uh, ADHD, ADD, uh, and some other uh, uh, conditions, Narcolepsy being one of them, but it's an amphetamine salt. The FDA said... That uh, alternative therapies for these conditions were available, and advised that patients speak with a healthcare professional on what the best treatment plan is. But basically, there is an ongoing supply disruption since at least August. Last night we covered the Ozempic shortage. uh, Ozempic for diabetes and uh, treatment, and and where it's being used for off-label things, for example, uh, weight loss, and. Guess what? Now they're now the same thing is going with Adderall. Now I think two major medications from uh, managing medical stuff, common medical problems, I think that's a little bit disconcerting where now we're having shortages of this stuff. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Uh, one of the uh, manufacturers is not expecting uh, supplies to be recovered until at least March to 2023. See your doctor for advice before you start messing around with your prescriptions. So now there is a theory now that a serial killer in Stockton, California, might also be the Duck Walk killer from Chicago. So there is a serial killer in Stockton, California, and they're trying to wonder if it's the same person that was in Chicago, and uh. Basically, uh, this has been going on in the investigation in the background, which is not off the record, but it's like in the background where it's happening, but nobody's talking about it. Uh, So the Stockton serial killer, according to police, has taken the lives of six people and injured a seventh in Stockton and Oakland, and now now they're all people out there freaking out. I would too. Last week, the police released a video of uh, a, the killer. Now they're thinking that they're linking the two uh, c- uh, killers together, one in Chicago and the one over there. Something to think about. Uh, full disclosure, one of my former political associates, in my political life, was the uh, minister for David Berkowitz, also, the, also known as the son of Sam, killer from the 70s. And he was his minister for many years, and it was just uh, the stories that he would tell on, uh, of you know, things on there, obviously nothing confidential, but, uh, you know, but everything that was on the public record, according to him, he said, yeah, you know, uh, he did uh, manage to uh, reform himself and uh, found God in prison, which is a good thing, I guess, uh, some good news. Well, let's finish on some good news. The first ever cancer vaccine could be ready in months, I to say. This is coming from uh, 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 Moderna and Merck and uh, they have said that there is a uh, this is a game-changing vaccine which is meant to combat high-risk melanoma which is the deadliest form of skin cancer. And it's similar to the uh, technology they use is similar to the technology for the COVID vaccines. Cancer shot is tailored for each patient to generate T cells, a key part of the body's immune system, based on the specific mutational signature of each tumor. Well, this is a good thing. And let me uh, go and remind everybody that they need to check themselves for skin cancer or, better yet, have their significant other check all over their body for skin cancer and then we could probably get a good chance in fighting this because early detection is key. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
0: Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated-R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, You are listening to Safety Wars. Tomorrow's safety today.
1: And we are back with Safety Wars. Let's talk about some money issues here. Dow Jones Industrial Average a down to 29,634.83. S&P 500 was down to 35,83.07. NASDAQ 103,21.39. Russell 2000 down 16... 82.40. U.S. Treasuries are up to 4%. That's going to be some kind of milestone here. Bitcoin is up. nineteen two o seven o six, and crude oil, which is probably being impacted from the strategic oil reserve release, this is at 855.55, 85.55 uh, per barrel. Precious metals. We have gold. Down at two sixteen fifty four thirty silver down big jump down seventy two cents to eighteen fifty one 18.51. platinum is up nine eighteen point thirty and palladium is down to one seventeen down by one seventeen twenty and uh, hold on hold on I gotta read this palladium is down one hundred seventeen dollars and twenty cents at these that settled at two thousand thirty three fifty. Chemical Safety Board this week issued a final report. And I'm no one's been talking about this, really. I got it as a fluke, so I don't know. Is it a Safety Wars exclusive? Okay, let's try that again. Is it a Safety Wars exclusive? I'm going to call it in the city. This is from October eleventh, two 2022. This is right from the Chemical Safety Board uh, press release. The CSB released its final report into the 2019 PES fire and explosion in Philadelphia. If you recall, a hydroflor back in 2019 in June, uh, outside of Philadelphia, there was a massive explosion that occurred at the Philadelphia Energy and Solutions Refinery that uh, basically a the incident occurred. Well, I'll just read it. The incident occurred when a corroded pipe elbow ruptured, releasing processed fluid into the refinery's hydrofluoric acid alkylation unit. So hydrofluoric acid is a catalyst in whatever they were doing there. During the incident, over 5,000 pounds of highly toxic hydrofluoric acid were released. A 38,000-pound vessel fragment launched off-site and landed on the other side of the schoolkill River, And an estimated property loss of $750 million resulted. The company went bankrupt, but, I mean, you should see, uh, they have videos, I'm sure they're on the Internet, of this thing exploding and this big vessel fragment flying. And two fishermen, as I recall, why were you fishing this cool river? I don't know. Uh, Hopefully they were sport fishermen and not sustenance fishermen. And this big friggin' piece of steel they found. Unbelievable. This is one of the largest refinery disasters worldwide in decades in terms of cost. The local community in Philadelphia, fortunately, was not seriously harmed. But given the refinery's location, it could have been much worse. This incident should be a wake-up call to the industry to prevent a similar event from occurring in the future. The CSB's investigation that over 117,000 people reside within a mile of the refinery. So the refinery is currently being, uh, this is not in the press release, but Refinery is currently being dismantled, and while uh, the uh, the PES apparently, allegedly, according to what I've read, has gone bankrupt and they sold everything off to developers, but there are still ongoing uh, environmental issues going on at the refinery. And good news is is that they uh, actually uh, are ahead of schedule in the demo. So, uh, some of the key safety issues that the CSB identified was mechanical integrity. The CSB determined that the pipe elbow that failed had corroded faster than other piping in the hydrofluoric alkylation unit. That is because the steel pipe elbow contained a higher content of nickel and copper than other piping in the unit. Now, we're on that in a minute because that's a very uh, interesting observation. I mean, you gotta be, I have to comment and had him on the back. You gotta really have your groove together to do this level of analysis here uh, with with this, right? So that was item number one is verifying safety of equipment after changes through good practice guidance. When the pipe elbow was installed in 1973, I'm shocked that they have uh, records going back that far, knowing what I know about the oil industry. The standard set by ASTM, that's American Society for Testing Materials, for carbon steel piping, did not specify limits on nickel or copper content. Over the next de- next decades, that standard changed. By 1995, ASTM uh, had been... Rev- the standards had been revised enough that the pipe elbow no longer meet- met ASTM's requirements, this one, through the elbow's high levels of nickel and cop- uh, copper. So basically... The spec changed. All right, this is often what happens. I'm not saying this has happened here, but this is often what happens on these jobs. The uh, Some of the standard changes, and because it ain't ruptured, it ain't leaking, it ain't broken, they're not going to fix it. And apparently that might have happened here with PES. Uh, so... And that goes into it, right? To prevent catastrophic incidents, companies and industry trade groups must ensure process safety when new knowledge on hazards is published, according to CSV Supervisory Investigator Lauren Grimm. Right? So uh, she went on to say, a comprehensive evaluation of unit piping never occurred despite regulations from both the OSHA and uh, EPA requiring companies to determine that their equipment is safe to operate after industry standards is updated. So, CSV found, also, we have a couple of bullet items here. Uh, There were no remotely operating emergency isolation valves installed in the HF alkylation unit, meaning that somebody had to go in there and physically turn things, which, with a major fire, that may not be really a feasible thing to do, because you're supposed to protect human life first, uh, the environment second, and property last. Although these valves are not explicitly required by API standard, that's American For Institute standard on safe operation of HF alkylation use, units, if PES had installed such valves, the release from the pipe elbow could have been minimized and the subsequent explosions could have been prevented. As a result, the CSV is recommending API to update the standard uh, to require installation of remotely operated emergency isolation valves on the inlets and outlets of HF-containing vessels. And any hydrocarbon-containing vessels, meaning the uh, defined thresholds. Now, hydrofluoric acid. Let me uh, recall with all of you folks here in the safety world. HF is one of those things where you get it on you, and you don't realize it until it goes and starts eating away at your bones. And the typical uh, treatment for this, so I'm told, is to start amputating things until there is evidence that it's not destroying your bone marrow. <laughs> Bullet item number two, safeguard reliability in HF uh, alkylation units. On the day of the incident, pumps designed to spray large volumes of water to suppress an HF release failed to activate early in the incident as the elements to remotely operating pumps were damaged by the fire and explosions. Forty minutes elapsed from the time of the release began before a worker was able to manually turn on a water pump. In the meantime, HF escaped the unit and vaporized. As a result... CSV is recommending API to update its standard on the safe operation. Blah 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 to require that critical safeguards and associated control system components be protected from fire and explosion hazards, including radiant heat and flying particles. And they're also calling on inherently safer designs. So, according to this CSV uh, Chemical Safety Board uh, press release. Of the 155 U.S. petroleum refineries currently in operation in the U.S., I didn't know we had that many refineries, to be honest with you. 46 operate a similar process. And it's one of the... Uh, and, it, and it's also one of the... HF is one of the highest... Uh, one of the eight most hazardous chemicals regulated by EPA's risk management program. So uh, op- alternate technologies have been... Uh, uh, created, uh, specifically sulfuric acid as a catalyst instead of HF, although sulfuric acid is highly corrosive and cause skin burns upon contact, remains a liquid upon release, and does not present the same risk surrounding communities. So, you safety professionals out there, what is this called in the hierarchy of controls? The traditional hierarchy of controls. It is A substitution, you're substituting a less hazardous chemical, no, a more hazardous chemical, you're getting a less hazardous chemical in there for a more hazardous chemical, however you want to say it. So the CSV's investigation found that there is no federal regulatory, where is my math today? Regulatory requirement for refineries to analyze inherently safer design strategies to reduce the risk of serious accidental releases. And it goes on and on and on, but what the, what's the uh, end result here? So these facilities have to be upgraded every so often, all right. And as they're upgraded every so often, it would probably behoove what they're recommending here is that they update the technologies. My understanding, also from insiders that were related here because I was in the industry, my and I guess this is the same words of exclusive. My understanding is that the uh, area where this pipe ruptured it was a very difficult area to get to, and it impeded any type of upgrades being gone on. The report doesn't say that here, but that's what I understand from the industry. So take it or leave it. I have no way of verifying that. So, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me because it's not the first time that I've heard of things of something like that happening, where things were never upgraded because. Uh, uh of that uh, what, because of whatever uh, if I could uh, remind everybody of Charlie Moorcraft and remember Charlie, which is a famous uh, safety movie. So we're gonna take a brief uh, break here and we'll go come back in a minute. Okay, we are... back.
0: Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com You are listening to Safety Wars. Tomorrow's safety today.
1: Okay, we're back. And we're going to be talking about our main subject here, which is fall protection. So this past week, I... Presented a fall protection competent person training class for one of my customers, and specifically it was the uh, uh, co- competent person portion of the class for uh, the Army Corps of Engineers. So there's a lot of stuff. No, there no, with fall protection standards. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's several different standards. They all have their little nuances here. Uh, one of them is the EM385 ch- uh, uh, standard under the Army Corps of Engineers for the Army Corps of Engineers projects. So uh, that's updated. Uh, it's currently being updated. They're supposed to issue something in the very, very near future. And essentially the uh, manual, I'll read from the uh, purpose, right? This manual prescribes the safety and health requirements for all Corps of Engineers activities and operations. Manual applies to headquarters, uh, and no, and all the fixed location as fixed uh, locations and facilities that are typically DoD things, related things, as well as U.S. Army Corps of Engineer contracts and those administered on behalf of U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So, if you're working on a DoD project or anything administered by the Army Corps of Engineers, which believe it or not, uh, is a lot out there. I've been on environmental cleanups that were administrated by the Army Corps of Engineers. And we had to uh, uh, comply with some of the things in the EM three eighty five standard, even though and, right. And typically, when uh, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers loans out, often uh, their personnel, if the EPA is short or another federal agency is short, they lend them out to go and uh, do. No, uh, administer cleanups, things of that nature. That's not unheard of. Uh, so you have several different things uh, related to uh, fall protection. So you have your normal, let's assume we're in construction, uh, walking and working surfaces as in the 1910 standard. That is general industry. But we're talking about the 1926 standards. So you have the OSHA standards, which are uh, – uh, essentially the 1926-500 uh, area. Right? And you also have the 1926-451 for scaffolding and uh, going on to uh, steel erection, 1926-760, uh, underground construction and stairways and ladders. That's all dependent on fall protection on that. So, uh, right, that, that that's OSHA. So OSHA is the law. Right? Basically, if uh, OSHA comes down and cites you for fall protection issues, it's going to be the law, uh, the law. Now, and if they're not regulating some aspect of fall, pardon me, of fall protection, then it's gonna, they're going to go to an industry standard. For example, the ANSI 359 standard for fall protection. And the ANSI 359 standard is very comprehensive. What's, no, let's back up here. So for a regulation to get updated under OSHA, it takes many, many, many years. It does. We're talking 10 or 15 years in some cases to get it a standard. Unless it's an emergency temporary standard, then it's only temporary. And if you've been following the COVID stuff, uh, that's very uh, – we should all be pretty much experts and familiar with it. So what uh, OSHA says is uh, for a lot of these standards, if we don't have a standard, you have to go to an industry standard. ANSI is one of the industry standards. Uh, NFPA uh, NFPA is another uh, agency, another uh, National Fire Protection Association, where OSHA defers to them also, right? So ANSI has, I don't even know how many standards. They have standards dealing with uh, fall protection, obviously, hearing uh, protection, eye protection, hand protection, you name it, every th- every aspect out there. Uh, NFPA is related really to fire and fire rescue type things. So you have to know where you are. What applies to you? Is it construction? Is it general industry? Is it maritime? Is it uh, uh, marine terminals? Is it uh, agriculture? Is it something else? Are you on a DOE job, Department of Energy job? Well, you have totally different uh, requirements on a lot of that stuff. You have to know where you are. So here you go. Uh, So what OSHA considers fall protection to be one of their focus for hazards meaning that they've seen a lot. It's one of the most frequently cited things. It also leads to the most amount of injuries, whether they are same-level falls, meaning you're tripping and falling, or you're falling from height. And I mean, it's a lot. It's something like one uh, over uh, almost one quarter of the injuries, uh, I'm sorry, one quarter of the fatalities under OSHA are fall protection-related. They have to do with a fall. So what are some of the requirements for this? some of the frequently uh, cited standards right here. And (sighs) let me think here. So under 19, I'm just gonna give an uh, update of the regulations here. So for example, under 19 subpart M, 1926 subpart M, 1926 501, you have a duty to uh, to have fall protection systems with your, for your employees. Real simple, and they outline all different things. They outline leading edges, uh, different requirements. They require, uh, this is where the six-foot rule comes in, and uh, hoist areas where you're going to be hoisting things onto, let's say, a roof or an upper level. You're required to have some type of fall protection. Uh, And then holes that are uh, holes and decking, including skylights, have to be protected, right, from that. Uh, all different types of form. But what does it come down to? Six feet, all right, and from falling from all other levels. Even for excavations, dangerous equipment, uh, all different things. Okay. And it also applies for residential construction. So let's say someone's doing your roof. Guess what? It applies. How about for wall openings where they're demoing a wall or building a wall? Yeah, that applies. And it also applies the duty to have fall protection is you're protecting your employees from falling objects. Now, what's the hierarchy of controls? And Gravitech, uh, and I'll quote them, they have some pretty good, uh, uh, one pretty good handout here that's often used by safety professionals called the hierarchy hierarchy of fall protection. But basically, there's five different things you want to do. And it's very similar to the other hierarchy of controls that we're all used to. And that still applies. You have hazard elimination, where you're going to eliminate that hazard somehow. Maybe do it. uh, the, The example they use is changing a light bulb with a pole. The second one is a passive fall protection system. And that's where, you know, if you can't eliminate the hazard... Yeah, have passive fall protection. What are you talking about? Covers would be one. Uh, top rail, mid rail, and tow board on railings that meet OSHA and ANSI requirements of 200-pound uh, limits, uh, weight limits on the uh, uh, top rail, 150 on the mid rail, and 50 pounds on the tow board. The, uh, and if you cannot do that, you cannot guard it, you cannot put a guard over it, uh, which is what this it is, is a guard or a cover, then you have to move into number three, some type of a fall restraint system. And there's certain advantages to a fall restraint system. That means it's a, you know, they're they're often called fall restriction uh, or work uh, worker restriction systems, where you're going to limit the amount of area where you could travel. So if you are in, uh, if you are in uh, on a roof, and you rig up your fall uh, restraint system so you cannot fall over the roof, right? Fall off the roof. That's what you want because then you're eliminating a fall. So uh, that that's the basic line on that. There's some certain advantages. So for example, an anchorage system. What you need to tie into with a fall arrest system. Your anchorage point has to hold 5,000 pounds. The full restraint system by OSHA letter of interpretation, it's only 3,000 pounds. So that might be something that you want to do as opposed to that. Uh, Again, workers, no, as you can move further down the hierarchy of controls, you're really relying on the workers and more importantly, your competent persons to do the right thing. Competent persons are, uh, and foremen, supervisors are all part of management and that's how OSHA views it is management. And there's really no excuse. Hey, well I told the guy to put on a harness Well, he didn't put on a harness. Yeah, but you're the competent person and the foreman. You knew about it. Management knew about it. So there goes that defense out the window when you get cited for that or you get sued for that. Right. And let me point out that following OSHA regulations does not necessarily prevent injuries, Right, and uh, does not absolve you of any type of liability associated with workplace injuries. And then you get so you get from the hazard elimination, a passive fall protection, fall restraint system, then you go into the fall arrest system. Now, the fall arrest system, you need a 5,000 pound anchorage. You need to start calculating fall distances for the type of lanyard or connecting device to the the harness, and we'll get back to that in a minute. And you also uh, have to verify that everything is uh, set up properly, and it's all in the setup. You want to get into that skills mode for under the SKR work mode on there. And then the fifth is some type of an administrative control, and I always, but always, but always recommend against administrative controls with this, uh, specifically a safety monitor. Every fall protection situation that I have uh, where they, when I've been, no, let me back up. Not every, again, I've got to be careful here. Three-fifths of the fall uh, uh, injuries that I've investigated where because you had a they said we're going to use the safety monitor system on a roof and person ended up biting the dust because they fell off and the other thing is this if you have a safety monitor system they had to be fully dedicated to that doing that and what happens after about twenty minutes Somebody picks up a hand tool and throws it at the person because they're uh, you know they're aggravating everybody. So, fall arrest systems, here's a question for you. In our typical hierarchy of controls that we have and from uh, promoted by NIOSH and OSHA and everybody else, you have certain levels. You have elimination, substitution, engineering, administrative, and the last one is PPE. And we're told that the PPE is the least uh, preferable forms of protection because now you are relying on exclusively on the worker verifying the worker has training verifying that they have the correct equipment verifying that the equipment is used properly and everything else that goes in there that we that companies have an, uh, or organizations have a tendency of uh failing in some court some way well here's a question for you something you want to think about fall rest system where you're going to be exposed to a fall, you fall into it, it breaks your fall. Is that an administrative control, or is that PPE? Or is it a substitution? Which one is it on that traditional hierarchy of controls? I'm going to argue, and I would argue, that it is a substitution. Because if you think you're going to fall into a harness and a lanyard and not get hurt, a harness, lanyard and anchorage system, a fall protection system, not get hurt and it's not going to hurt and you're not going to get injured. You got another thing coming. Why? You have a lot of hazards that happen with a fall into that system. Let's say that you have a pre-existing back injury. We're talking, uh, 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 herniated disc. Let's say you're talking, uh, you can have suspension trauma. You can have many, many, many different injuries from that, but you're not going to die in all likelihood if it's everything's set up appropriately. So it's more of a substitution. That doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. Now, that now, some of the challenges in using a fall arrest system or even a fall for restraint system. Uh, under OSHA, Everything has to be set up, everything has to be inspected by a competent person under the uh, 1926-32 regulations. And what's a competent person? Someone who's able to assess the hazard and fix the hazard. Companies often fail with that when they don't identify the competent person. It's usually the foreman, but sometimes, in some cases, it's been the owner of the company because the foreman didn't even have authority to change things. So how do you like that? In some jurisdictions, like New York, if you're the competent person and if you screw up, it could be a criminal or civil penalty against you. Moving onward, uh, ANSI, the American National Standards 359, their requirements for competent persons are very explicit, as are the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, thing. And we also do, do training and all of this stuff. So, for example... The, uh, here we'll thumb down here. I had the standard out right in front of me. So under the, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, zm 385 standard, you have a fall protection program manager, which is also a, a part of ANSI Z359.2 and all of this stuff. Then you also have a qualified person for fall protection. And this is the person that is also in, uh, and is also uh, more or less called out in 359, but not really. Yes, no, I don't have that standard in front of me, but you have to have a qualified person designing things for and for technical support. So normally, often an engineer, but it does not necessarily have to be an engineer. It could just be somebody very, very knowledgeable in fall protection who's able to design it and who is able through per, uh, through uh, professional standing, however we are going to define that, is cable to be a qualified person. So for example, uh, for certain systems, I'm a qualified person on some of them. I can be legally on paper a qualified person. Is that something I go out and do? Probably not. I have a qualified person available that I could call. The big thing is, is that I mean, whether it's, OSHA, whether it's ANSI or whether it's the Army Corps of Engineers, they focus on the confident person. The confident person is responsible. This is out of the Army Corps of Engineers thing. The confident person is responsible for the immediate supervision, implementation, monitoring of the fall protection plan uh, plant program that's developed by the fall protection program manager and installing the equipment by the that's the, uh, designed by the qualified individual. So that's the main focus of a confident person and with fall protection. And there are a number, I'm looking at a whole page of stuff and w- they have to be trained in all this stuff and pretty much everything that has to do with fall protection, including, and we know we understand the use and software. Oh, we understand all that stuff. But the things that people often do not, uh, uh, focus on because I think it's because it's towards the bottom of the page is that you have to verify that the end users who are working at heights are trained and authorized to do so. You have to verify training. That's a confident person. So let's say that you have an employee who does not know what they're doing, has bad work habits. It's that bad apple that the behavior-based safety bill people often focus on. Uh, are there bad apples? Yeah, of course. But they're not, that, that in my experience, few and far between. Right? That's not the first accusation you throw out there. So if they're not doing their job, then guess what? They can't, uh, they have to correct them. Under the scaffolding standard under OSHA, guess what? The confident person's got to do that. How do I manage this? I manage it because I have a list of confident persons, right? And this is on a uh, eight and a half by 11 form. I have a list of all the employees. And the confident person signs off. There you are, the confident person. Okay, circle and initial. And these are the authorized people to do fall protection and to use it. That's how I manage it. This way there's no question that they've been that their training's been verified, their work habits have been assessed, they've been audited, and everything else goes into that. That's how I manage that. You may manage it another way. They. The other thing is that they have to ensure that there is a rescue plan and procedures available and to be followed in the event of a issue where someone has to be rescued from suspension, right? And we also have suspension trauma, which is a bit major thing where if you have someone standing or uh, seated in fall protection for over five minutes, basically you have to consider, uh, they say nine, some sources, but I've read sources as uh, quick as five. They actually have to go and, uh, and verify that you have the rescue plan and procedures that are in place. The other thing is you have to review that with your crew. We mentioned and when i taught the class this week uh we were old friends everybody in this i knew everybody in the classroom uh three of them uh i've worked with them for many many years and uh, we were talking about another employee that we worked with not working there and we said look this person do you remember when this person had the uh we were on a, a unit in an oil refinery and the oil and there was a fire there and he refused to evacuate because uh, the area because he uh, he didn't believe safety people. He didn't listen to safety people. That was what he did. He didn't want to listen to anybody. If there's a fire, where is the fire engine sort of thing? Not knowing that often fire engines will stop way before, outside the barrier limit of the unit. Before They're not going to proceed on the unit with all their equipment and everything. They're going to put it outside the barrier limit right where things aren't going to get damaged refuse to do it you have to identify that type of individual in your workplace train them encourage them incentivize them to listen to safety all of that stuff that goes in there and some people they're just not going to do that and at that point you have to let human re- it's not a, it's not a safety issue at that point it's a human resources issue and i think we all know what that means here the uh, competent person also has to investigate a mishaps related to falls from heights. So part of the competent person training has got to be some basic accident investigation stuff. I have to talk about accident investigations. It's very important. Notifications, anything like that. They're supposed to know about you ensure all damage or deployed fall protection equipment is removed from service and inspect all fall protection equipment at the frequency required by the manufacturer. And that is the EM 385, the ANSI 359 standard and industry standards basically mirror all of these things. But again, you have to figure out what applies to you, but this is all of the basic, uh, there's all of the basic stuff a confident person has got to do. Now, the end user, meaning that the person involved at the end of this, has to have an understanding of workplace activities and how to use everything and inspect and maintain and store. Big thing is storage. And then you have the confident rescuer, who is responsible for anticipating uh, and planning the rescue stuff, where you have your work with the confident person and program manager go and work with the confident rescuer. And then you have the authorized, I'm sorry, is that it? Yeah. The confident rescuer. And then you have an authorized rescuer. What, well, regardless of what you're doing and regardless of what environment you're in, what well, you need, what do you need? You need a confident person. You need somebody who writes these plans. You need a qualified individual and you need a rescue and you need a user and you need a rescue team. That's what you need. Those are the uh, six things. And everyone has to be trained. And there are different training requirements. Under the Army Corps of of Engineers, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. I won't go into them. But typically, the uh, full authorized user is usually one day, or a half a day, my experience. Confident person, two days, usually. Or, and uh, under the Army Corps of Engineers, they have different requirements, and those are going to be changed, so I don't really think it's worth me mentioning them. But what I do will mention is that if you need fall protection training, give us a call, 845-269-5772, or contact us at jim at safetywords.com. Lanyards. Now you're going to say, well, okay, what about lanyards, Jim? What about them? You have to know what your... uh. Real simple. What your equipment is good for, what are its operational limits, and everything else that go on with that. So there are uh, several different types of lanyards, and a lanyard goes from the anchorage point, which has got to be rated at five thousand pounds, and the lanyard has to be connected to the uh, uh, anchorage point from by D ring to by a uh, clip to D ring, not clip to clip or some kind of convoluted D-ring to D-ring, but it has to be usually uh, an anchorage sling, beam clamp, something like that with a D-ring. Does it have to be that way all the time? Uh, Not, maybe, maybe not, depending on what you're doing. But that's what uh, companies are looking for, are manufactured systems as opposed to a rope system. I've been on uh, projects where we have everything on there. We have it uh, with uh, ropes. We're able to do uh, have ropes and everything else up there. And, again, you have to be trained. You have to be a confident person. You have to be a qualified individual. You need all that. And facilities have said, no, that's a no-go on there, Jimmy. We want everything manufactured. And this adds to a lot of costs to the jobs sometimes. And the other thing is this. When you tell people, this is what facilities are used to. They're used to people going out there with ropes and, you know, they're, they, uh, and the ropes all have to be uh, rated. Uh, they're safety ropes, minimum 5,000 pounds uh, on them, according to OSHA. However, the typical uh, safety rope is rated at somewhere at ten to 12,000 pounds or more, depending on your system. And now that they have uh, fall protection systems on fixed ladders for, let's say, a facility that's already in use, that's already existing, guess what? That's... Uh, That's what they're doing. That's what we're uh, doing. So real quick here, and I'm trying to get the handout out here on the computer because I don't want to foul this up. You have several different types of lanyards. And depending on the configuration of them, you could go to the website of the manufacturer and you could look up exactly what you can look up exactly what the uh, uh, fall prote- what the requirements are for fall protection distances. So, for example, you have a six-foot shock-absorbing lanyard. With the shock absorber, and you do all of the math, it comes out to around 19 feet of free-fall distance you have to have. You can look that up. But basically, it's... Uh, Six-foot lanyard, six-foot person. Uh, six-foot lanyard, six-foot person. Three or four feet foot in the energy uh, dissolving shock absorber. Then you have some stretch and a safety margin of three foot in there, and you come up with 18 and a half, 19 and a half feet. As opposed to a Class A SRL, self-retracting lanyard, or they're changing the name of those things, but you have a self-retracting lanyard, Class A, now you're down to... Uh, two-foot of fall plus three-foot of safety margin. Now it's five to six feet, and Class B could be seven or eight feet. And you could also have a free-fall lanyard, and that could be uh, up to uh, considerably more. And it all depends on where the anchorage point is in relation to the individual. And then you can factor in what's called a swing fall, What's the moral of the story? It's not to go out there and make you be a prof- professional on fall protection uh, from because you heard it on a podcast. Even though that's what people did with, uh, that's what people did with uh, uh, COVID, you know, they go and they listen to something and they hear you know, they hear it on, uh, they hear it on the internet and then they go with it. And there's also one other type of lanyard, which is called the leaning edge lanyard, where if it's going to be over an edge, doesn't even have to be a sharp edge. It just has to be an edge. Uh, these lanyards are often, uh, uh, snap and it does not take much. You could go and look on the internet for snapping lanyards. So that's all the basics. And that's what we're covering for fall protection Friday. Next week, we're going to talk about, uh, uh, if there is a Friday program, we're still working things out here. Uh, we're, uh, to talk about equipment inspection and things of that nature so uh we're going to go and we'll put on a outro All right now you have an intro now you have an outro
0: safety wars is streaming now SafetyFM.com.
1: any form or by any means mechanical electronic recording or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast jay allen okay good night everybody and have a phenomenal weekend enjoy the last few warm weekends we're going to have we're signing off here at safety wars